Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 334 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Richard A. Clark. He has over 30 years of experience in national security, including over a decade working in the White House, and he's now the CEO of a cybersecurity consulting firm. In his 2004 book, Against All Enemies, he harshly criticized the U.S. government for failing to prevent the 9-11 terrorist attacks. His other books include novels such as Breakpoint, Sting of the Drone, and Pinnacle Event, and nonfiction books such as Cyberwar and Your Government Failed You. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new podcast, Future State, and his recent book, Warnings, Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes, in which he and his co-author R.P. Eddy survey seven future threat scenarios, including artificial intelligence, sea level rise, and meteor strike. And now, here's our interview with Richard A. Clark. All right, so we're here with Richard A. Clark. Welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be with you. Okay, so your new podcast is called Future State. So why'd you want to get involved in podcasting? Well, I wanted to get my voice out. And I think the old way of doing that, uh, which I did for 15 years of being a talking head on a TV network, uh, just doesn't re- reach the right audience. Uh, I did ABC News uh, as a talking head on national security issues for 15 years. Uh, and when I looked at the demographic of who's watching, you know, you get maybe 8 million people a night uh, watching the ABC News uh, main broadcast. But most of them are in their 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, and uh, their minds are kind of made up. Yeah, and so uh, so what was the process of getting your podcast up and running? Well, we we met with Cadence 13, which has, I think, over four dozen podcasts, uh, many of them in uh, in sports uh, fields, athletics, uh, but they also do uh, Pod Save America uh, and other political uh, podcasts. And we uh, said to them, look, we'd like to do a, an experiment. We'd like to do a series, uh, just 10 shows uh, in the run-up to the election. Uh, and they said, okay, well, who do you think you could, uh, talk to as, uh, as guests? And I said, well, you know, I think, uh, Bill Clinton, <laughs> Madeleine Albright, Susan Rice. They said, okay, fine, fine. <laughs> uh, and we did. We got all of those and, uh, and a lot more. Uh, and we've gone, uh, not only for well-known names, um, but also for, uh, subject matter experts. Uh, so we had a great conversation on uh, nuclear war, which doesn't sound like a current topic until you realize that the Trump administration is planning to spend over a trillion dollars uh, on new nuclear weapons. So we got people uh, who knew about nuclear war back in the Cold War days uh, to come back and talk about that. We had uh, We went to Harvard to the Kennedy School. Uh, and had a great conversation up there with experts on cyber war. Uh, we had two wonderful experts on terrorism. Uh, so in addition to the big names, we had some very fascinating subject matter experts. A lot of the podcasts uh, were recorded uh, as we drank uh, <laughs> uh, Pinot Noir. Uh, we wanted to call the podcast uh, Pinot and Policy, but no one, uh, no one let me do that. <laughs> Well, right. I, I listened to all the episodes, and I, I really enjoyed them. The episode you mentioned on countering terrorism with uh, Nick Rasmussen and Michael Sheehan uh, was was one of my favorites. 
And I just really, I really think everyone should listen to it because you really got a sense for how thoughtful and professional and informed um, some of these experts are. Yeah, well, they both, Nick Rasmussen was the uh, the head of the U.S. counterterrorism program until about a year ago. Uh, he'd done it for 15 years in the White House and in the intelligence community. Uh, Mike Sheehan, uh, unfortunately passed on, uh, after the, uh, we did the podcast. But Mike held every job, uh, related to counterterrorism that mattered from the Pentagon to the State Department to the NYPD. Uh, and I went back and listened to it recently. And it was really a conversation among, you know, three friends, uh, who could kid each other, who could disagree <laughs> with each other and poke each other. Um, but it was as though, uh, for the listener, uh, they were suddenly allowed to sit in uh, on a discussion, uh, you know, maybe one of our homes or the bar, uh, among three guys who had worked together fighting terrorism for 15 years. And it was like, uh, you know, this is your ticket to the inside. Right. I think that's one of the big advantages of podcasts is you can have these sorts of hour long conversations, whereas on television, like ABC News, I would imagine you're always limited to two minutes or something. Yeah. Yeah. If you're lucky, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're lucky, uh, maybe on Good Morning America, you could go to three. But uh, the, on the world news, uh, yeah, you'd get a minute and a half or something. And you, therefore, you have to speak in sound bites. And over 15 years of doing that, I you know, eventually learned how to speak in sound bites. But you can't convey a lot of thought, a lot of texture, a lot of background uh, in the soundbite. Uh, but with the podcast, you can, and you can go deep. Uh, and I think a lot of us want to know more than we're getting uh, from cable TV. And we want that extra depth. And we find a time in our life when we can do it, whether it's driving to work or uh, time in the subway or time on the treadmill. Uh, we find that time so that we can go deep on things we like. And we get to select what we listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any sense at this point of whether you're uh, just going to do the 10 episodes or do you think you'll ever do more? No, we're going to begin another season. I think the date is February 11th uh, and probably do 12 uh, shows in the March, February, March, April timeframe. I mean, you said that one of your goals was to reach younger people. Do you have any sense of whether of how older, young the people are who are listening to the podcast? No, the only thing I can tell is where they are. I mean, I, I can tell uh, where the IP address is when somebody downloads, um, but we can't really tell who they are, mm. which is fine because, you know, that's kind of creepy, I think, to, <laughs> you know, you, you download and I know it was you. No, we don't. We don't know who's listening. Uh, well, yeah. So it was it was great, as you were saying, that you were able to get these high profile guests like Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright. Did you uh, did you need to twist their arms or anything, or were they uh, eager to, no, no. to do the show? No, I mean they're all friends, and they're people I worked with for a very long time. I worked with Bill Clinton for eight years in the White House, uh, and Madeleine Albright for eight years. Uh, first, when she was at the UN, and then when she was Secretary of State. Uh, so no, uh, they're 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 friends, and they did it as a favor. Um, but they enjoyed it. Every single one of them really enjoyed it. I was curious, you know, uh, Bill Clinton had a sort of a thriller novel that came out recently that he wrote with uh, James Patterson. I was just curious if you uh, read that or followed that at all. Well, if you look in the back uh, under acknowledgments, uh, you'll find my name. Um, 
because uh, neither James Patterson nor President Clinton are really experts on uh, on IT and cyber, uh, and that's a big element in the book, in the novel. Uh, so they called me and said, can we brainstorm with you? We've got this plot. <laughs> uh, and I said, okay, what's the plot? And the president uh, said, well, to begin with, the president goes missing. And I said, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you were president, you could never have gone missing for a moment, for a nanosecond. Uh, he said, yeah, well, it's fiction. Uh, but then he bounced this uh, idea off, and it involved a, uh, uh, a hacker gang. Uh, and he said, you know, what could a hacker gang do that would really threaten the economy? Uh, and I said, well, all right, I got a few ideas. And uh, he took them. So blame me if you don't find that credible. <laughs> Uh, so, so, Chris, could you just talk about why you selected the title Future State? I mean, would you say that you have a particular interest in the future as opposed to the present? Yeah. I mean, the, the hope was, and I'm not sure we did it in the first season. We'll probably do a better job of it in the second season. The hope was to raise issues that uh, address the next decade or the next uh, 20 years or so uh, and begin to discuss in depth uh, you know, some of the things that will affect us. The, the trillion dollars is, uh, on nuclear weapons is something that Trump wants to spend out over the next 10 years. Uh, and that's just, you know, folly. Um, the, the cyber war, uh, sure, it's a, it's a present condition, but we talked about what's going to happen in the next decade, uh, as artificial intelligence and machine learning and quantum computing. Uh, and the Internet of Things all explode on the scene over the next decade. So we're trying to be future-focused uh, and say, what can we do now on all of these issues to affect how things evolve over the next decade or two? Right. And I mean, obviously, this show, since it's a show for science fiction fans, we talk about the future a lot. And one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is that your assistant, Tyler, said that, said that you're a science fiction fan. Could you talk about oh, what yeah. some of your favorite science fiction is? Well, I began in the 1950s um, as a kid. Um, I went to the library and I found uh, it was the age of Sputnik, and so we were all into into space. Uh, and our teachers were all teaching us about space as a way to interest us in science and math. And I went to the library and, and into the science fiction section, and I found there was a guy who had written several books with my last name, <laughs> Clark, Clark with an E. Uh, and so I got a couple of them, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, and I became addicted. I read everything that Arthur C. Clarke published, uh, beginning with The City and the Stars, Fall of Moon Dust, Rendezvous with Rama. Uh, the thing about Clarke was he, uh, he was interested in the technology. So it wasn't science fantasy, and it wasn't kind of plot development just that happened to be in the future. He was interested in explaining how things would work. Uh, and if you go back into the, I think it was the early 1950s or late 1940s, uh, he wrote a paper uh, outlining a concept for putting communication satellites in orbit around Earth. And he's one of the first people who ever suggested that. And he went into the details of how it would work. So he was really, you know, a tech guy, uh, as well as a writer of fiction. Uh, and when he talked about life on the moon, uh, in the fall of moon dust, 
uh, he went into a fair amount of detail about the problems that you would face in doing that. I mean, do you think that had any impact on the trajectory of your career involving the technology and IT and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, basically, throughout my career, I've been the guy uh, who understood the national security-related technology and explained it to the policymakers. I also eventually became a policymaker. But I was that sort of C-3PO unit, <laughs> you know, that, that, that could translate uh, from the technical stuff uh, to the policymakers because policymakers in Washington, in the Defense Department and the State Department, uh, in the White House where I worked, um, they tend to be lawyers. Uh, and lawyers tend to be lawyers because they can't do math. You know, and if they had higher SAT scores on, on the quantitative, they wouldn't have gone to law school. <laughs> um, I, no, I'm, I'm serious. Um, and so when you, when you bring them an issue like nuclear arms control and, and all the complicated, uh, technology around that, uh, or biological arms control, chemical arms control, all of which I did, um, they just freeze up. They don't understand it. Uh, and when you talk to them about, okay, this is how we're going to do the verification uh, of these arms control deals. Uh, let me talk to you about the orbital mechanics of our reconnaissance satellites. They just freak out. They can't deal with it. Cyber is worse. Uh, they run from the room when you talk about <laughs> cybersecurity because they just know they're not going to get it. So were you sort of the lone science fiction guy in a lot of these conversations, or did you have uh, any sort of fellow science fiction fans in government that you uh, met? Oh, yeah, very much. The uh, the guy who worked with me for 30 years in government uh, and eventually ended up running the Homeland Security Department, uh, Rand Beers. Uh, uh, Rand and I would, uh, would trade science fiction books for – uh, all of that time, we're still trading science fiction. <laughs> um, he he gets more opportunity now than I do uh, to read it. So, um, yeah, now there's a small community uh, of dyed-in-the-wool science fiction fans. So when you were trading books, like what sorts of books were you trading? Uh, he turned me on to the Dune books. Uh, and I, I hated him for it because I <laughs> then ended up having to read all of them. Uh, and, you know, once you get hooked, uh, on a series like that, uh, if the series has already been published, you just have to go through them one after another and you can't do anything else until you've done them all. Uh, so yeah, the Dune books were fun. The Dune movie, of course, was horrendous. Right. Um, and anybody listening, if you, if you're thinking of getting hooked on, uh, the Dune, uh, series, please never watch the movie because you'll never read the books if you do. <laughs> I mean, as I understand it, Frank Herbert was pretty well versed in Middle Eastern politics and that informed the Dune series a lot. Was that something that, that you saw, uh, reading them? Yeah. Yeah. It comes, it, it comes through a lot. Um, uh, not only is, uh, it all taking place in a desert world, uh, not unlike Saudi Arabia. Uh, but a lot of names, the naming conventions are, uh, are Arabic naming conventions. So it turns out when I later in my, uh, professional career end up working a lot in the Middle East, uh, I find a lot of people in the Middle East have read all the Dune books. That's interesting. You know, in, in, um, your book, uh, Warnings, you mentioned that there's this hacker group called Sandworm named after yeah. the, named after Dune. Yeah, the, uh, they're actually the Russians. Uh, 
I think uh, I got to keep all these code names straight, <laughs> but I think I think Sandworm is actually uh, the Russian GRU. So is that a code name that that we've given them, or is that a code name they've taken for themselves? In that case, I think it's their own. Um, you know, the, what happens with these uh, code names uh, is that usually an American IT security company will notice an activity, uh, and they won't be sure. Uh, that it's North Korean intelligence or Iranian intelligence. And so they'll give them a name. Uh, and the naming conventions are some companies go for numbers. Uh, so they'll name a group, uh, uh, Advanced Persistent Threat Group 28, APT 28. And that same group will be called, um, Magic Kitten, uh, by another, you know, American company. Um, and then occasionally the group itself, uh, even though they're branches of the army or branches of the intelligence force of a country, um, they'll use a name to describe themselves. Uh, Magic Kitten, it turns out, is a name some American company gave to uh, Iranian intelligence. Uh, so when you name somebody Magic Kitten, they sound sort of soft and nice and cuddly. <laughs> And I think that's I think that's unfortunate because you know they're not <laughs> they're they're Iranian t- intelligence they go around killing people uh, or calling the GRU fancy bear makes them sound kind of cute and they're they're, they're thugs uh, who go around killing people uh, the Lazarus Group uh, is a name that somebody gave uh, to North Korean intelligence uh, hacking team uh, so I you know I I wish people wouldn't do that. I wish we'd just call them who they are. I just think it's interesting that there are science fiction fans on both sides of all of these conflicts. And I don't know if you ever get, you probably never get to talk about science fiction with uh, Russian hackers or something, but that might be an interesting talk, conversation. I don't, uh, I don't knowingly talk to Russian hackers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you never know who, who they are these days. Um, but no, uh, it's clear that wherever hackers are, uh, there are a group of people who are interested in science fiction. Yeah. I also, I've heard that Newt Gingrich is a big science fiction fan. I don't know if you've ever, uh, interacted oh, with him at all. Uh, I have, um, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but no, I, no, I did not, I, uh, I did not know that. Uh, it's not surprising. He's interested in tech, uh, in general. So, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, he actually he, he he wrote this book that was a blueprint for the future that he co-wrote with David Drake, who's a sort of hard science fiction author. So, mm-hmm. uh, let's see. So, I thought it was interesting. Also, in, in warnings, um, speaking of science fiction, because you talk about how a lot of these topics, these these future oriented topics like meteors or killer robots, that people don't take them maybe as seriously as they should because they associate them with blockbuster movies and um, you know, sort of Hollywood. Silliness. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a very interesting trend line on several of these uh, uh, subjects that we talked about in the book warnings, where you know a professional, a scientist uh, will say, "Oh, there's a phenomenon here we have to worry about, uh, like asteroids hitting the Earth," uh, and they'll write about it in in academic journals. Somehow, it will make it through to fiction writers. And those fiction writers will whip up a, a script for Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood will then make a movie about it. Uh, and that's the first time most people hear about the subject. Uh, killer robots, asteroids hitting the earth. Um, and 
giant plagues wiping everybody out. Uh, and because most people then learn about this thing, this phenomenon, from a movie, which is obviously over the top and, and, and science fiction-y, um, then no one takes it seriously. And this is a real problem that um, we've had with, with asteroid impact. Um, there's a serious issue with asteroid impact. There's a high probability of asteroid impact on the Earth. It's happened many times in the past. And, you know, maybe now I think we can say that there's not going to be a big asteroid, uh, like a dinosaur killer asteroid, hit the Earth in the next 200 years. We can say that with above 90% confidence, uh, because finally we've done the mapping. Uh, but to say that about the smaller ones that could wipe out the whole city, we can't, uh, because uh, our knowledge base for that size uh, impact uh, is pretty bad. And if we suddenly saw one of these things, we might see it 10 years in advance, but we might see it two days in advance. Uh, and that's happened uh, in the past where large uh, pieces of rock appeared uh, and got picked up, and we had like two days of warning. Uh, one of those uh, hit you know, in Sudan a couple of years ago, south of Khartoum, and hit in the desert. Uh, but we had two days of warning on that. And if it had hit a city, it, it would have wiped out the city. It was big enough. Uh, we saw that one that hit uh, in Siberia a few years ago. And what we talked about in warnings is we do not have a plan for dealing with that. Um, only recently has NASA created the Office of Planetary Defense uh, and begun to talk to the Air Force and to FEMA uh, about what we would do uh, if we saw a killer, a city-sized killer asteroid uh, headed toward the Earth. We really don't have a magic wand. We don't have a a rocket that we can fire up, a missile that we can fire up uh, right now, uh, and uh, on certainly not on 48 hours uh, alert, uh, but not even on six months alert. Uh, we don't have the capability of doing anything about it. I mean, the expert in the book, I think, doesn't he say that your odds of getting killed by an asteroid are actually higher than your odds of getting killed by a tornado, whereas people take tornadoes seriously and don't take asteroids seriously for some reason? Uh, yeah, I don't remember that quote, but the, the, the odds of a large asteroid, large enough to, to kill people, uh, hitting the Earth are really high. Uh, now, most of the Earth is water, uh, and the, the part that's not water, most of it is empty, or close to empty. Uh, very little of the Earth is covered by cities, but you can't roll it out. I mean, is there anything that science fiction writers you think could do about this problem of if you write about future scenarios in a science fiction context, it makes them seem less real somehow? I don't, I don't think it's the, the science fiction writer's fault. I think it's Hollywood's fault. Uh, I think Hollywood takes things that are reasonable books uh, and books that spend a fair amount of time talking about the science or the engineering. Uh, and then they kind of throw them over the top uh, when they make the movie. Uh, I thought, you know, frankly, Ready Player One, the book was 
pretty realistic to me. Uh, and then I saw the movie and I thought, yeah, well, you know, that's not going to strike anybody as realistic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, better movies, I think, like you think if the Hollywood movies were not over the top, you think that that would, um, yeah, you know, and mobilize. Some of them, yeah. And some of them, gravity wasn't over the top. Uh, you know, some of them aren't, some of them are pretty, uh, uh pretty damn good. Uh, even if you go back to, uh, you know, one of the great classics, uh, 2001, the space odyssey. That wasn't over the top at all uh, until the last five minutes. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it spent a lot of time showing what a space station would look like and the, uh, what it would be like on a shuttle going up to a space station. Uh, now, un unfortunately, 2001 has come and gone and we don't have that kind of technology. But uh, that was a realistic movie. There have been a number of them. But some of them, when you end up talking about uh, robots with artificial intelligence, uh, and it ends up being the Terminator, uh, and the robot is Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, that doesn't have the right effect on people. I mean, you actually say, I mean, you say that, that these movies kind of trivialize some of these issues, but you also say, um, as happens more often than those in power want to admit government concern was partly catalyzed by Hollywood. This was in the case of the asteroid strikes that actually. Oh, yeah. No, the, the two asteroid movies that came out, uh, the same year, an incredible, uh, the two Hollywood studios would bring out a movie about asteroid impact uh, <laughs> within months of each other. Uh, that did have a, an effect uh, on congressmen, uh, oddly enough. Uh, and the congressman reached out to NASA and found the people in NASA who cared about it. And it wasn't the NASA administrator. It was people, you know, at, at lower levels. And some members of Congress worked with some of these lower-level people in NASA to create the program that we have, uh, funding, first of all, the, the survey, the Sky Survey, uh, and now funding this Office of uh, Planetary Defense. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's a, a real possibility, and we could use more funding for planetary defense. But I guess just from reading your book, we could use more funding for all of these scenarios because they're all pretty terrifying. Um you know, I think involve varying degrees of uh, probability, but but all very serious concerns. Yeah, what we what we said in the book was we we think we need a system uh, to look ahead uh, for uh, these black swan events, these improbable events, uh, and to really analyze them with an open mind uh, and ask, could this really happen? Uh, and how will we know when the odds of it happening? are increasing. Uh, and is there a way for us to plan for some of these events? And as the odds of the event increase, uh, we increase our funding and we increase our planning. Uh, some future threats fall into identifiable buckets where there are people worrying about these things. And it's clear who's in charge. You know, if you talk about uh, a new pandemic, uh, the Center for Disease Control, uh, and, and people like that, uh, are experts in their, in their planning. Uh, but if you talk about asteroid impact, it was never clear. Was that NASA? Was that the Air Force? Um, and who, who was supposed to fund all the, tr the, the, the tracking? Um, and if you worry about sea level rise, uh, well, who's supposed to plan for that? Uh, and, Who's supposed to be measuring that? Uh, who's supposed to be investing to save our cities 
if uh, if suddenly, as our, our Cassandra in the book predicts, uh, there will be a sudden increase in the pace of flooding. Uh, it's not linear. It doesn't just keep going a little bit higher every year. Uh, but James Hansen uh, was also also a NASA scientist at one point. Uh, he predicts it'll be a step function. It'll be a real leap uh, where the feedback loops kick in. Uh, and there's a lot we have to do, if that's true, uh, to save coastal cities. Who's in charge of that? Right. Well, speaking of sea level rise, I mean, you quote Michael Crichton in the book talking about, uh, he says, the work of science has nothing whatever to do with consensus. Consensus is the business of politics. Yeah. But he, he said that in the context of sort of downplaying climate change. Well, he did. But I think the point that we're trying to make and that Jim Hansen makes uh, is there is a phenomenon which we call scientific reticence, that scientists um, love the scientific method. Uh, they love being able to replicate uh, an experiment that somebody else did. Uh, and until that happens, uh, you can't get peer approval and peer review. Well, as Hansen says in the book, I can't um, replicate the the melting of the Greenland ice cap. Uh, you can't do that five times to see how it works out. <laughs> uh, and there are these events where if you wait for science to say, yeah, that's definitely going to happen, uh, it's too late. Uh, and so there are there are times when really the the jury is still out uh, on a scientific uh, conclusion. But you as, as a country, as a nation, as a society, uh, need nonetheless to begin to hedge your bets uh, and to begin to ask the what-ifs and to begin to plan so that if the data suddenly proves, uh, yeah, this really is going to happen, uh, you've done some advanced thinking, maybe some experiments, maybe some engineering. I, I believe that Michael Crichton testified before Congress about, you know, sort of downplaying climate change. I don't know. Did you ever um, pay attention to that or did that have any impact? No, uh, I, th I think the science on climate change is pretty well established. The only thing that uh, is open for debate, I think, uh, is this issue of whether or not sea level rise will take a, a sudden increase. Uh, and while Jim Hansen said that five, ten years ago, and people, no one signed up uh, to agree with him, uh, now I think it's almost a majority of experts in the field of sea level rise say, uh, yeah, it's not going to be linear. And um, the UN model, uh, the IPCC model, uh, has had to be corrected three or four times uh, in the last six or seven years because the worst-case scenario keeps being not the worst-case scenario. Uh, the reality is all, always uh, worse than the worst-case scenario in all of these things. Right, and there was something you quote James Hansen saying in the book that I thought was really striking, but he was saying basically that things could get really bad in, I forget, 40 years, something like that, whereas yeah. his critics say it could, it'll, it, it may not get really bad until 2100. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, is like, like, 
you know, even if it doesn't get really bad until 2100, that's just as real for the people living in 2100. Why is this such a, um, you know, why well, yeah, are we discounting I mean, this concern? The, the, the mainstream analysis uh, of NOAA, uh, uh, the U.S. government uh, organization, NOAA, the mainstream analysis that they have for 2100 uh, is 86 inches. Uh, well, that that's pretty devastating. Uh, and that's the mainstream analysis, and the, and the variants, uh, the variable cases, are, are much worse. And, and there are people, a lot of people, uh, probably living today, uh, are children, uh, who will be around in 2100. Right, and that's one of the reasons I think science fiction is so important, because I feel like so many people, they can't, um, you know, concretize, or they can't, they can't grasp the fact that 2100 is a real thing. It's not, you know, they treat it like it's like, oh, that's 100 years in the future is like Narnia at some fantasy land or something. But, you know, people, the many more people probably than are alive today are going to be alive in 2100. And uh, what we do now is going to have a huge impact on the quality of their lives. Yeah, well, we have a very sort of self-centered focus uh, on time. Uh, I'm writing a chapter now for my next book. I'm writing a chapter on quantum computing. Uh, and I'm writing it for a general audience, uh, and trying to explain quantum physics to a general audience is really, really tough. Um, having to explain it to myself was <laughs> really, really tough. Um, and so I began the chapter by saying, think about my grandfather. My grandfather, because I've got an odd, uh, family history, my grandfather, was born in 1865. That's a long time ago. There were no airplanes. Uh, photography had just been created. Trains were not that uh, uh, old. Uh, electricity didn't exist. If I could take him uh, and recreate him uh, and, and sit him down today with the knowledge that he had from let's say when he was 30 years old, and explained to him uh, an A380 or a 747, uh, hundreds of tons of steel that will fly through the air at 500 miles an hour, seven miles up. That would be sheer magic to him. And yet all of us have been on a 747 or a 380. We know it's not magic. None of us can really explain how it happens. None of us really understand, like, Vernoulli's principle <laughs> or something like that. I know there is such a thing, and I know it's something about wind going over the, the, the wings and, and lift and all that. But yeah, I don't Especially really, for lawyers, we can't explain Especially it. for policy people, right? I don't really understand how a 747 gets into the air. But I know it does. And so for quantum computing, I try to say to, to the readers of this new book, um, I'm going to try to tell you how it works. You're not really going to understand it, no matter how hard I, I try. Uh, so just go with it. You know, <laughs> go with it like like you're going to go uh, with the 747, and your grandchildren will think about quantum computing the way you think about the 747. Uh, it's a it's a crazy, outlandish idea to my grandfather. To me, it's quite normal. Uh, our grandchildren will look at quantum computers as everyday things and entanglement and all that stuff we don't understand. 
they won't understand it either. But they'll accept it, and then they'll use it, and then they'll incorporate it, and it will change the nature of our society. I don't know if you, do you know Douglas Adams has a great quote on this. I don't know if you know it. He says, um, anything that was invented before I was born is a natural part of the world and has always been there. Anything that was invented before I was 30 is useful and wonderful. And anything invented after I'm 30 is like wrong and more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> well, a lot of it seems like magic um, to people, to, particularly to people. The older people look at new technology and, and say, I don't understand how that works. Uh, well, yeah, people have never really understood how technology works, uh, but they've they've incorporated it uh, into their lives. Uh, you know, we don't understand the best physicists today uh, don't understand why entanglement works, uh, but yet we know it does. The Chinese uh, have entangled two photons in space uh, and then shot them down uh, via laser uh, to the Earth. Uh, and taken the two uh, entangled photons, shot them down to locations 750 miles apart in China, uh, and then modified one of them, and instantly the other one switched, uh, thus proving that you know entanglement works at a distance, and no one knows why. Well, so you said you're working on a new book. Is there anything more you can say about that? Yeah, uh, it's called The Fifth Domain. Uh, comes out next summer, uh, and it's about uh, it's about cyber war. Uh, it's nonfiction. Uh, the reason it's called the fifth domain is that the Pentagon um, tries to militarize everything it sees, uh, and so they talk about domains. Uh, and the domains had been land, sea, air, and then space, meaning outer space. Uh, they've now picked up this piece of jargon calling cyberspace the fifth domain. Uh, and uh, when they see something, they want to dominate it. So the Pentagon's new mantra is, we are going to dominate the fifth domain. Hmm. Uh, and what we're saying, Rob Kanaki is my co-author, as he was on the book Cyber War uh, 10 years ago. Uh, what we're saying is, you know, maybe, guys, we want to, try to achieve cyber peace, not cyber war, and how can we lower the temperature in cyberspace? Right. So, I mean, you've written a bunch of nonfiction books that we've talked about a little bit, but you've also written a bunch of fiction books. Um, I haven't read this one, but on, on Wikipedia, it describes your novel Breakpoint as a, quote, cyberpunk science fiction novel. Is that yeah. a, an accurate description? I think so. Um it was going to be called, my, my working title for it was uh, Revolt of the Luddites. Uh, you know, the Luddites were those people uh, at the outset of the Industrial Revolution uh, who didn't want there to be an Industrial Revolution and so tried to uh, do sabotage on, uh, on factories. Uh, the book is about a near future uh, in which there seems to be a bit of a convergence happening uh, between genetic engineering uh, and robotics uh, and uh, computing. Uh, and you can see maybe, you know, maybe Ray Kurzweil's back uh, uh, somewhere in the, uh, in the scene saying, aha, there's going to be a singularity. Uh, and people are beginning to talk about it in society who don't want it to happen. And Somebody begins blowing up 
the labs, the computer labs, the genetic labs, uh, trying to slow down uh, progress. Uh, uh, that's the plot. So are you, would you say, sort of bullish on genetic engineering and uh, cybernetics? Would you want to uh, sort of uh, upgrade yourself or are you? Uh... Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm uh, Ray Kurzweil and I are the same age. And uh, Ray thinks that all this will happen in time so that uh, he can be, uh, you know, uploaded or, or downloaded or whatever it is. Uh, I hope he's right. Uh, I, I don't think Ray or I are going to see it happen. Um, but yeah, if there were an option today, um, to, uh, upload or download myself into an advanced, uh, hybrid of, uh, uh, human robot. Yeah. I embrace the Borg. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I've always thought that, uh, the, the problem with the way the Borg were portrayed was they were, they were made to be this evil enemy. Um, why wouldn't you want to be part of the Borg? Um, that seems to me to be the ultimate, human evolution uh is to take control of our own evolution to take control of our of our dna uh and to augment our capabilities through genetic engineering and those you can't do through genetic engineering augment by uh, uh by robotics one of the people you interview in the book is eliezer yakowski and he's concerned about ai uh enslaving or exterminating humanity yeah. Um, and he proposes that the, the best way to foreclose this possibility would be to create our own friendly AI first and use its, uh, you know, incredible intellectual power to suppress other, the emergence of, of hostile AIs. Well, uh, I, I tried in the book to not let my opinion show, uh, on the issue of, uh, AI and machine learning. Uh, my opinion is we have nothing to worry about, uh, that machine learning, uh, and AI are so far away today uh, from having the kind of capabilities that could be a threat um, that we have better things to worry about. Uh, and in the end of the day, we will always control uh, AI and ML. Uh, and, you know, if suddenly we get um, an, uh, like the Google bot uh, that turned out to be uh, racist, uh, <laughs> the, ch the chat bot, you know, we can do what Google did. We unplug it. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to be in the situation uh, where uh, the AI or the ML, will, if it malfunctions or if it begins acting up, uh, where we can't get rid of it. I don't worry about it. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And I, I also feel like just this idea that the, the AI will spring into existence and then 45 min minutes later will have conquered Earth. It yeah, seems like, like before we got to that stage, some... A less sophisticated version of that would have been put to use by malicious human actors to do something really terrible, uh, at which case the danger would become clear to everyone. Yeah, and we will make progress putting checks and balances into the technology. And already people are saying, well, it's nice that machine learning gave us this answer, but we'd like to know, and the answer appears to be right, uh, but we'd like to know how it got there. Uh, and uh, what it considered and how did it weight things. Uh, and right now, you can't really figure that out. Uh, but people are saying, okay, let's modify machine learning so that it's transparent uh, and so that we can do an audit and figure out uh, what were the weightings, what were the decision algorithms it wrote for itself. Uh, I think that's probably 
relatively easy to do. Uh, you know, it's not something that I could do, but probably something that people will do in the next three or five years. Uh, and that'll help. Uh, I think machine learning has only just begun. Uh, and if you, if you combine it with the power of quantum computing, a lot of people, even though we don't really have a functional quantum computer yet, a lot of people are writing algorithms uh, for when we do. Uh, and most of that work is on machine learning algorithms for quantum computing. Uh, and the, the possibilities there are really exciting because the quantum computer will be able to run through every possible permutation uh, for new drugs, for new uh, materials, uh, very exciting stuff. I wanted to ask you about, so on your first novel, Scorpion's Gate, the tagline says, sometimes you can tell more truth through fiction. I don't know if they ran that by you or anything, but what, what do you think about that? Uh, well, that no, line? no, that was, that was my line. Um, I was trying in Scorpion's Gate, and you have to remember when it was written back in the early days of the Iraq War, uh, 2005 or something like that. Uh, I was trying to portray the kind of people uh, who made decisions about going into Iraq uh, and the kind of decision process. Uh, and uh, it was a, there was a very thinly veiled Donald Rumsfeld in that book. So you, so that was, you were still um, in the administration at that point? And you no, couldn't... no, no, no. I couldn't do that inside the White House. No, I had gotten out. Uh, but I thought, you know, rather than write a, another nonfiction book about Iraq and Donald Rumsfeld and, and, and George W. Bush, why not tell the readers what I think about those people by portraying them as fictional characters uh, and exaggerating their tendencies just a little? Uh, and then you sit back and you say, oh, my God, that's Rumsfeld. <laughs> um, and, oh, what a terrible person he is. You know, it's easier to, to do that with fiction, I think. I mean, I heard you say that you were hoping to reach a wider audience, you know, above and beyond the audience who would read a policy book or a nonfiction book, the audience who would read a, a you know, a thriller or a, you know, blockbuster kind of novel. Do you, did you, um, do you think you succeeded? Did you reach yeah. no, people I, I with those? I did. I did. I, I've published eight books so far, four fiction and four nonfiction. And I was fascinated by drones and the use of armed drones. Uh, I was one of the first uh, advocates in the government to create armed drones and, and to use them. And so I feel some, uh, not guilt, uh, I don't feel guilt, but some, um, some relationship to the, the fact that we have this phenomenon today. Uh, and I thought, you know, I could write a book, a nonfiction book about drones. I have a lot to say, but no one's going to pick that up. Uh, whereas if I write a novel, a thriller, uh, where one of the characters is, you know, the drone, uh, and the drone pilots, uh, people might read it. And, and there'll be a different group of people who will read it than ever would have picked up the nonfiction book. And that happened. And I was able to say all the, the policy wonky things I wanted to say about armed drones, uh, in the novel. And as I went around to bookstores, you know, doing events at bookstores and, and book talks and signing books, half the people I talked to thought I was opposed to the use of armed drones. 
And half the people thought I was in favor of it. And I thought, wow, I succeeded. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I showed both sides of an issue. And I showed both sides of an issue through a novel with, I think, compelling characters. I saw in a video you're at politics and the, the bookstore Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C., and you say that you told your publisher this is the only bookstore that you want to appear at now. Yeah, you know, it, when I first uh, started writing, uh, my publishers always wanted me to fly around the country uh, and go to a bookstore. Well, I mean, let's say you fly into Denver and you go to the, the tattered cover in Denver. It's a great bookstore. Uh, if it's a really good night, you might get 300 people to come to a book talk there. Uh, and of that 300 people, you might get 10% of them to buy your book. So you've flown to Denver uh, and you've sold 30 books that way. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of not worth your time. Uh, whereas if you go on podcasts, uh, if you go on uh, FM radio, particularly NPR stations, uh, you're more likely to hit thousands or tens of thousands, uh, of people. Uh, and they are, they are readers, just like the people who come to bookstores. Uh, I think it's a much better way, uh, to use your time, uh, to promote your, your novels and your nonfiction books, uh, by podcasts and, uh, and radio. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I was watching TV one time and I, I was just randomly was, was watching this thing with Katy Perry where she was about to go out on stage in front of this huge auditorium and she's, she says there's there's 14,000 people out there or something. And and I was kind of like, oh, wow, actually more people download my podcast than that. So yeah. if they were all to come to one place, it wouldn't be like a bookstore appearance. It would be like a big, <laughs> you know, stadium seating kind of thing. Right. No, exactly. But the, but they don't. You know, they're doing it at home. Uh, in the comfort of their of, of their own home, and uh, they're doing it when they want to. Uh, so the the podcast is really a great thing. Yeah. Um, so have you gotten a sense of um, whether these books have had an impact on um, decision makers or public policy or anything like that? Uh, the book Cyber War, uh, which incredibly enough now is uh, ten years ago, um, had a huge impact. Um, it was nonfiction, uh, and a number of senators, congressmen, generals uh, told me when they wanted to understand, when they finally realized they had to understand the phenomenon of cyber war, and they asked their staff, where do I begin? Uh, they were given the book. And a number of universities uh, put it on their uh, required reading list, war colleges. Uh, and then one day I was at a conference in Germany. Uh, and a very tall man walked up to me and said, uh, I think you should pay me royalties for all of the copies uh, of Cyber War that I sold. And I had no idea who he was. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, well, how many did you sell? And he said, oh, I think hundreds. And I said, really? Uh, why? How? And he said, well, I began by making everyone in my cabinet read it. I said, oh, you had you had a cabinet? What was your job? He said, oh, I'm the president of Estonia. Huh. <laughs> so when when presidents of countries come to, up to you and say, you know, your book was so important, I made everybody read it, it, it might have had some effect. Yeah, that's great. I, I guess I want to just mention the big takeaway I had from warnings in terms of influencing 
opinion or influencing public opinion and even just, you know, um, decision makers and things was that a lot of times these people who, who are sounding the alarm, they have really good reasons based on their expertise and their data analysis. But then they're trying to convince people who don't have the technical background to understand the data at all. And most people make decisions not on the basis of data, but basically it seems like on how much they like the person conveying yeah. their message. That's important. It's an important element of it. And a lot of the scientists and engineers we profile in warnings uh, are not the most attractive people uh, in one way or another. And there's a dangerous feedback loop, which is the more people ignore them, the more kind of frantic they get, uh, and therefore the less believable they get. Uh, so many of these people eventually come off as looking or sounding a little crazy. Um, because they think they've discovered something very important and no one is paying attention. Right. But it's, so it's, I think just the first step in persuading anyone of anything, it seems, is first you have to earn their, uh, respect or, um, you know, affection or something. And then you can try to, you know, persuade them using facts and science. Unfortunately, that's the way it seems to work. Yeah, and I think, frankly, for a lot of these people, the best move uh, would be for them to find somebody else to be their spokesperson uh, and for them to be the technical expert. Uh, the way, you know, Al Gore uh, was kind of the spokesperson on climate change. Uh, I think he was very persuasive, uh, but he wasn't a scientist. He wasn't an engineer, um, but he could, with a few PowerPoints, uh, explain the, the issue. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to, just getting back to science fiction before we run out of time, I, uh, Tyler mentioned that you've been watching The Expanse, which is my favorite show on TV, and I never miss an opportunity to, uh, you know, promote The Expanse. I was just curious, could you talk about, uh, you know, why you like that show or, you know? Well, it's kind of addictive. Um, you know, it has a lot of the elements, uh, of, of the real world issues that we deal with today. Um, international competition, in this case interplanetary, um, but international competition, um, the UN, uh, nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction, um, conspiracies within governments and between governments. Uh, I found it, it felt real to me, uh, even though it's obviously dealing with uh, issues in the, in the distant future. It just felt right. I hope there's a, there's a fourth season. I understand Amazon has picked it up. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I was really uh, making a lot of noise when uh, when Sci-Fi canceled it. I'm just I'm really excited that Amazon picked it up. Yeah, I th I think Sci-Fi will will regret making that decision. Well, I, I think in a lot of ways Amazon is a better home for it, just because it's a streaming service and it's uh, you know it appeals the show appeals to a highly technical, highly educated audience, and um, you know I just think. You know, sci-fi, I think they, I don't, I don't blame them, um, based on the sort of television deals and things that they had. I, I think they, yeah. you know, it, it didn't work out, but, um. And they, and they have a narrower base. I mean, Amazon has a much bigger audience. So the chances of there being a lot of people in the Amazon audience, uh, who, who like it, I think are pretty high. Yeah. So I, I think it just worked out for the best in the end. Um, uh, okay, so we're pretty much out of time. So I guess just uh, final, do you have any other, you mentioned you have this new book you're working on. Do you have any other projects you're working on or just any other final thoughts or anything? Um, no, I think people uh, in general ought to, if, if, you're, if you're not a science fiction reader, 
um, if for some reason you have a prejudice against it, uh, you really ought to get rid of that prejudice because it is a way, literally a way of seeing the future. And it has been uh, for a hundred years. Uh, and if you go back and look at the science fiction books I read as a kid, uh, you know, a lot of that uh, technology uh, that people wrote about as science fiction, that technology is now real. And a lot of the reason it's real is that the kids who read about it went on to become scientists and engineers and made it happen. Yeah, I obviously I agree with that 100%. So yeah, just everybody read more science fiction and listen to more podcasts like Future State and also check out books like Warnings, Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes by our guest today, Richard A. Clark. And so Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a great conversation. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Richard A. Clark for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Patrick Barry, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.